I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because don't forget, Donald Trump has the authority of the president of the United States in his hands. Right. In terms of what he can do domestically here, as well as what he can do internationally. To try to distract attention, whether or not he's going to pursue some type of foreign adventure, military or otherwise. Right. But fundamentally, though, what he's doing to this country, he's dividing us. We Americans, as you pointed out, Revolutionary War and Civil War, we fought hard for the freedoms and liberties uh, that we have right now. And so he's dividing Americans. And so I'm really concerned that as he continues to play to his base, he's further dividing us. And I'm really concerned about whether this could spill over into the streets. And so I don't know what the principal protagonist in this drama is going to do. But I surely hope that those adults and those people in the White House and in the cabinet and in the Congress are going to recognize that they need to act before there's a real disaster. And by act, I mean whether it's going up to Donald Trump and saying, this has got to stop. You are ruining this country, and we're not going to tolerate it any longer. They cannot turn a blind eye to this. They have to forget about their political affiliation. They need to do the right thing. Well, thank you for everything you've done for this country. That's John Brennan, former director of the CIA. He appeared on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday night. And I find this interview that he had with Bill so compelling simply because he used the word treason when talking about Donald Trump. Now, that's a new line that's been crossed. Again, this isn't Bernie Sanders. This is the former director of the CIA. That will be coming up later in the show. On a lighter note, Jim Whitaker. He was the first American to climb Mount Everest, and he did so in 1963. He's 89 years old and lives in Port Townsend. This is an interview I had with him over 20 years ago. He talked about that climb and some of the challenges he faced getting to the summit. He also guided Robert F. Kennedy up Mount Kennedy in 1965. The Canadian government named the tallest peak after President Kennedy shortly after his assassination in 1963. He's got a great book called Life on the Edge. He wrote it in 1999. I read it some time ago. All I remember about the book is I laughed a lot and just found it extremely interesting. Another interview I had some time ago was with a former mayor of Seattle, Wes Ullman. He served in that capacity from 1970 to 1978. He was elected mayor when he was 34 years old. He has been credited with doing a lot of preservation for Seattle, saving Pioneer Square from the wrecking ball. And that was the same time that the Pike Place Market was being saved from the wrecking ball, and it was going to be turned into a garage. I think we're all happy that that didn't happen. My name is Paul Casey, your host of Voices of Experience. I can be reached at 206-459-5536. Back with my interview with Jim Whitaker in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Legendary mountain climber and Northwesterner Jim Whitaker is with us today. 
on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. When did you first know that you wanted to climb mountains? Um, I was a Boy Scout back there in uh, Troop 272 in West Seattle and, uh, a long time ago, and we used to take hikes up in the Olympics and Cascades, and they led up, the trails led up to the mountains, and so we learned a little bit about scrambling and so forth and get up in some pretty hairy places and then decided, hey, we better learn something about it. So I joined the Mountaineers Club and began, uh, went through the climbing course and so forth, and then uh, early in uh, 1948, I began to guide up on... Uh, Mount Rainier, uh, taking people out to the ice caves and up to the summit. And do you remember, like, a defining moment when you said, this is what I want to do? I knew I loved the outdoors early on, uh, you know, even before Boy Scout. My parents would take me for walks down to the beach there and, and Fauntleroy and so forth, and I w would walk from Fauntleroy all the way up to Arbor Heights every day to, from home to school and back. And, and uh, you know, I just grew to love the outdoors, and so that this was a, sort of a natural extension of it. And, and uh, Everything is so clean. Nature's a good teacher. We, you know, it's it's wonderful to stand up on top of mountains and to be in the forest. And actually, we've been programmed for centuries to do that. You know, so it's just recently we've been locked up in buildings in a, on these uh, in these bottles with wheels that go down asphalt trails. Your parents were they outdoorsmen, or was this something yeah. that you kind of adopted? So they were. They kind of yeah, they led the way. Of, yeah, they sort of led the way. And uh, you know, the out of doors is all. Yeah, it's been my life. And so, you know, the climbing was a part of it. REI was selling equipment that would let people go into the out-of-doors. And so that was, you know, sort of my my vocation. And then, and then my hobbies were climbing and skiing and all of that stuff, sailing. The climb on Mount Everest in 1963, how did that develop and all come together? Well, I've been climbing, uh, guiding on Rainier, and was my both my brother and I, Lou, were well known as, as strong, very strong climbers, and so I got a phone call from Norman Durnford, the Swiss fellow that lived in Santa Monica and had thought about forming an expedition to climb Mount Everest, American expedition. So it was, you know, relatively unclimbed, and, uh, you know, so I got a phone call asking if I'd like to join uh, an American Mount Everest expedition, and, you know, it took me a long time to decide, almost 60 seconds, and I said, sure, and uh, was invited to go along. You know, the whole thing is a, is a series of exciting moments, uh, but I guess the worst was uh, the second day we were climbing on the mountain when we lost one of our, our team, uh, Jake Breitenbach, was a guide from Jackson, Wyoming. And uh, they were climbing an ice wall that I had gone up the day before to put route on. There was no other way around it. Uh, we had to go up the wall, and uh, Jake was there when the wall collapsed. Uh, and it killed him. So we lost one of our teams just the second day on the mountain, and that was a pretty tough, pretty tough thing to to overcome. Some of the team decided not to do that wall and would stay in base camp and help out, but not, but not climb the mountains. The rest of us thought, well, we we could, you know, we had more reason to cut the mountain even because of Jake. So what was it like standing on the top of Mount Everest? <laughs> I got asked that a lot, and uh, when we were, when I crawled out of the high camp at 27,500 feet with Gambu, a Sherpa that I was climbing with, uh, we were battered by 50 mile an hour winds, and it was 35 below zero uh, without the wind chill factor. So we started up in, in storms. No one else moved on the mountain that day. Everyone said it couldn't be climbed in that weather, and the weather was too bad to go out, so they stayed in their tents. But Gambu and I had only enough oxygen to go to the summit or back down to lower camp. So it was my last and only chance to get to the summit of Mount Everest. So 
we took off and uh, farther away up, I got some serious frostbite on the face. I was blind in one eye. When we reached the summit, we were out of bottled oxygen. We stood on the summit 20 minutes. And so we started down without bottled oxygen. They asked Gambu at our first press conference in New Delhi, they said, what was the first thing you thought of after having reached the highest point of Earth when you stood there on the summit of summits? And he answered for me as well when he said, how to get down. <laughs> that was the answer. And that was Jim Whitaker. And he'll be back next week for part two of our interview on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Legendary mountain climber and Northwesterner Jim Whitaker is with us today on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Well, let's talk about your newest adventure, and that is a sail around the world. Just want to let the listeners know that you're talking to us from your sailboat. You're preparing it for a trip that's going to leave from Port Townsend on October 15th. All right, it's a circumnavigation of the planet. We thought we'd take our 11- and 13-year-old boys out uh, and, and show them a little bit about the world and, and about what a wonderful place it is if you can just get out in it. And what's your uh, route going to be? We'll go down the coast, uh, stop in Santa Cruz. We have friends there, and then go on down into San Diego, wait for the hurricane season to end in uh, Mexico, then go into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico for a few months, then head across into the Marquises uh, and uh, the South Seas. And then, of course, you go from there to Australia and then up into... Uh, the Solomons up into the uh, Bay of India. We plan to leave our boat in Bombay. My friend Gambu, who climbed Everest with oh, me, okay. will have a family, his family that live on board while we go in for a trek to the base of Everest and take, the, take my two sons and a few other friends that might want to go. And then we'll come back to the boat and continue up north through Suez Canal into uh, Mediterranean. And I've got friends in Russia from my peace climb in 1990 on Everest. We'll go see them at Odessa, and then uh, go into uh, Norway, Sweden, maybe even touch uh, Greenland, and then come back down the uh, Atlantic coast, Panama Canal, back up California. And then how long do you project this is going to take? We talk to people that say, yeah, they left, they started for years, a year's trip, and they're nine years later, <laughs> still yeah. into the trip. So we're saying two to three years uh, on the circumnavigation. But the thing is, if you find a country... You know, you're docked into a wonderful country that, you know, it's nice and the children learning the language and so forth, and you might stay there a few months. It's hard to say. Well, I just don't think there's enough adventure in your life. Well, there's one thing we can give the children. They're not going to take a hell of a lot of money uh, from an, uh, any big inheritance or anything, but they we can give them a sense of of belonging to the planet, and it's a beautiful planet, and, and uh, we want them to enjoy it as much as we have. And adventure is something that we can give the kids. The other thing is that we'll be communicating with children around the country through the eyes of our children of what we'll have computers on board so we'll be able to talk on the internet Wonderful. Uh, with the kids. So the kids will be oh, able to tell when we pull into a village or into a bay or somewhere of some foreign country and, and maybe even go to the schools uh, they can convey what they see. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, taking the advantage of technology and, and meshing that together incredibly well. Absolutely. Actually, Microsoft is helping us uh, set up some equipment so we can communicate uh, on almost a weekly basis. Thank you very much, Jim. Hey, and good. again, best to you. Okay, same here. Paul Casey had a chance to chat with a former Seattle mayor, Wes Ullman. I asked former mayor, Wes Ullman, 
What was his fondest memories in government? Uh, well, I, I think that uh, when really pushed to the wall, it would be uh, walking down uh, through Pioneer Square and realizing that uh, we wouldn't have Pioneer Square if uh, I hadn't really become very personally involved and, and, and really gotten uh, into the issue of whether or not we're going to preserve our, our birthplace there. What position in government did you enjoy the most? Uh, well, actually, you know, I, I served in, in the state house. I served in the state senate and then as mayor. And uh, I, I would have to honestly say that uh, mayor is the most rewarding uh, uh, job that you can have in politics, better than Congress or the United States Senate or governor, I think. Because uh, you know, I was just having lunch a couple of days ago with Mayor Bellingham. We were talking about uh, the job of, of mayor, and you actually get to see what comes out of the pipeline and how it affects people directly. You don't um, uh, have to just vote on the appropriations and then kind of hope for the best. You're actually there on the receiving end. You're, the downside is you're closest to uh, uh, the people, so they can come and express their disapproval. They can sit in your office where it takes a 2,000-mile plane ride to go and sit in a congressman's office or, you know, on uh, an hour and a half uh, car ride to go down and sit in the governor's office. So people are closest to you, but the most rewarding uh, a part of being mayor is you actually get to see how programs affect people and you can change them and make them better. Mayor Ullman, what would you say would be your biggest disappointment in politics? Uh, well, it'd have to be maybe a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, I did run for uh, governor and uh, was very, very narrowly, uh, narrowly lost to Dixie, uh, Dixie Lee Ray. Uh, that was a disappointment, although uh, it, 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 my philosophy has always been that you should not stay in any office for uh, long periods of time, and I just felt it was time to do something else. But um, I'd have to say, substantively, my greatest disappointment was in 1972 when we had a, a light rail package all put together, which the federal government was going to pay 80% of. Um, the voters turned it down because they were still worrying about the, the Boeing layoffs and, and the economic downturn we were just coming out of. And uh, they turned it down at the polls. Uh, if we'd had it, uh, we wouldn't have the serious traffic congestion that we have today. Um, however, I honor the decision that the people made, uh, but we're living with the consequences now. The money went to Atlanta, and one only needs to go down to Atlanta to uh, to see uh, you know, what a fine program we could have had. <laughs> what do you think are the greatest challenges facing Seattle? Well, I think today the greatest challenges that we are faced with are just managing our growth. You know, the state legislature and the governor passed the Growth Management Act, which mandates, which says for a fact we have to have greater um, density. We have to have more people living here in the city of Seattle uh, because we want to try to offset urban sprawl. And, and try to utilize our resources the best way. And that is to say, we already have the sewers and the roads in here, in, in the cities, and, um, and uh, we don't want to have to go out and pay a lot more money and duplicate those, that infrastructure out in the suburbs. And we, wanted, we do want to try to contain growth. So the greatest challenge, I think, that uh, Seattle faces today is to how are we going to uh, deal with this mandate from the legislature on how to have more density in our neighborhoods and still preserve uh, the, the the uniqueness of Seattle with its single-family neighborhoods and and uh, and uh, unique qualities. Each of our neighborhoods is a kind of a unique mosaic, and we don't want to destroy that. Let's take for a moment to look back. Is there a decision that you would handle differently as mayor of Seattle today 
than you did at the time? Oh, I think there are several things. You know, you learn from experience. Um, I, I, I maybe might have tried to work more closely with the uh, fire department, the police department, in uh, trying to achieve affirmative action goals. Uh, uh, as you may or may not recall, we had a, a serious uh, recall election, which the whole issue of affirmative action was the centerpiece, and um, that, that divided the community. Uh, uh, we did. We. I maintain still that we were correct in our in, in our goal, and that is to is to have a greater representation of minorities in our police and fire services. When I took office, there was only one black firefighter out of the entire force of seven then about seven hundred people. So it was clearly something that had to be dealt with. But uh, I had a fire chief who didn't agree with uh, that uh, with those goals, and so I had to fire him, and that was very divisive. And um, I think maybe I might have tried to, to handle that somewhat differently, but um, I, there, are, there are several things that you learn in a period of time. I, I would, I think now, looking on hindsight, I would have gone back to the voters another time on the uh, light rail uh, program and tried harder to sell it. I asked all my guests this, Mayor Ullman, are you optimistic about the future of Seattle in this region? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have a very unique cast of characters that make up our citizenry. Uh, they're um, they're optimistic. Uh, they they believe in in facing challenges uh, and and meeting them and and beating them. Um, the people are here are what makes a difference in in this community. And and I think that uh, we're going to meet these problems of growth. We're going to meet the problems of transportation simply because of who we are. We'd like to thank former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman for spending time on U.S. West's Voices of Experience. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show in just a few moments will be the interview that Bill Maher had with John Brennan on Friday night on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. My name is Paul Casey, your host of this show. You can reach me at 206-459-5536, 206-459-5536. I've been playing interviews that I've had with various people, primarily in the Puget Sound region, 20 years ago. You heard Jim Whitaker today and also Mayor Wes Ullman. I also had an interview with Robin Leach when he came to town about, uh, gosh, in the early 90s. And I had a brief interview with him in Seattle. And uh, I actually played that interview a few weeks ago. I found out that Robin Leach passed away this weekend. If you'd like to hear that interview, you can just Google KKNW, go to Archives. Voices of Experience is at the very bottom of the page and under the category of Flashback Celebs Seattle, and you can hear the entire interview. One more thing before I go. We have two key congressional races in this state which we can make a huge difference nationally, and that is in the 8th District, where Lisa Schreier is running, and also Lisa Brown, Democrat from Spokane. We can do our part by bringing democracy back to this country. I don't want to be a, a drama queen here, but I really believe that that we need to do first things first before we even think about 2020, and that is getting the house back. So send money, doorbell, do whatever you can. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. HBO airs 
Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights. I'm a big fan of the show, and I've been a big fan of Bill Maher for many years now. As a matter of fact, I go way back to when he was hosting Politically Incorrect on ABC. But the show was pulled off the air and canceled because he said some controversial things after 9-11. He resurfaced years later on HBO. Anyhow, Friday night, he had an interview with John Brennan, the former CIA director. And uh, John Brennan served under Bill Clinton, President Bush, and then was appointed director of the CIA by President Obama in 2013 and served in that capacity until 2017. John Brennan has really come out in the last couple of weeks, well, actually ever since the Helsinki meeting in uh, Helsinki between Putin and Trump. And he's very alarmed at what's going on in the country. So this is not Bernie Sanders talking about this, and it's not uh, Cory Booker or um, Gavin Newsom, for that matter, all potential presidential candidates in 2020. This is the former director of the CIA, and I thought this interview with Bill Maher was very compelling. Now, as you may recall, Trump pulled John Brennan's security clearance a couple of weeks ago. So here it is. It's not in its entirety of about 10 minutes long. I divided up what I felt were the most salient points. John Brennan and Bill Maher on HBO's Real Time. This is the first time in 38 years that I haven't had a security clearance, and uh, the basis uh, for the revocation is uh, is bogus. Um, Mr. Trump and his administration didn't adhere even to the process that they reaffirmed last year. And the politicization of security clearances, either the granting or the revocation, is a real threat to our national security, which is why so many people came out and opposed uh, his action. It's interesting, Jared and Ivanka still have clearances. You, one of the guys who was the architect of getting bin Laden, does not. Uh, again, I believe very strongly in the principle that national security is one of the most sacred and solemn professions uh, in, in this government. And every American citizen deserves to have national security professionals, intelligence professionals, who are not going to be political, not going to be politicized, and no president ever should take that uh, uh, capability away from them. So, you know, I've been having a hell of a time here on this show trying to get my guests to say the word treason. I think the president is guilty of that, and you used terms like that. You said after Helsinki, it was nothing short of treasonous, which sounds to me like treasonous. Uh, And then I noticed this last week, some people tried to get you to take it back, and you wouldn't. And again, I, I I don't understand why people are so reluctant. I get it, it's a scary word. It's like, you know, don't break this glass case unless you need the... But when it's time to break the glass case, don't not do it just because it's a glass case. Yes, and I'm not a official of the Department of Justice where I'm issuing an indictment of right. <laughs> Donald Trump on yeah. treason. But there are two principal reasons why I use that term. One is that I think I exhausted all the other adjectives in the English language to, <laughs> to, to describe Donald Trump's failure to fulfill his responsibilities as President of the United States, number one. Number two, but when I saw him on that stage in Helsinki, failing to be able to say to the world and to Vladimir Putin, Russia tried to interfere in our election. It, it never should have happened. It never should happen again. And if it does, Russia's going to pay some very severe consequences as a result. But he didn't do that. And so treasonous is defined as a betrayal of trust, 
as well as aiding and abetting the enemy. And so that was the word that came to my yeah. mind. Now, he, he sh I wasn't expecting Vladimir Putin to say, okay, you caught me. He's going to continue to deny this. But this was an opportunity for Donald Trump to fulfill his responsibilities to say, Russia, cut this out. Don't do it again. And if you do it, you're going to pay a cost. He takes well, their side and not ours. That's a traitor. He calls you a lowlife. You, who spent your life defending this country, especially after 9-11, when we had all sorts of problems, and, and it could have gone way worse than it did. He, he said about General Clapper, is he a general? Yes, he was. Yeah, yes, he is. that it, they got to him. Mm -hmm. like, he, like you could get to a guy like that. It's not on our side. You're not on our side. You are a traitor if you're attacking our generals and admirals and people who keep us safe. And he's also right. trying to undermine the institutions of government and those individuals who he believes threaten him. And so, therefore, he's trying to sure. undermine the intelligence community, the law enforcement community. Uh, he's taken a page out of the playbook of autocrats and authoritarians around the world who tried to co-opt judiciaries, who tried to delegitimize the free press, who tried to use intelligence security services to go after their, their rivals. So Donald Trump is the typical authoritarian who is trying to control power. And as he becomes more desperate, and I think that's what we're seeing now, because the walls are closing in on him, as all the people who used to work with him are now cooperating or right. testifying uh, about what happened. I've been angry because we have somebody in the Oval Office who has really denigrated the office of the presidency. His dishonesty is unethical. He doesn't have principles. And I am very concerned, though. More than angry, I'm worried. Because now we are in a crisis. But since John McCain has left the Hill, the Republican spines have gone with him. And there needs to be some reckoning in the Republican Party that we can't allow this to go on. And we have an election coming up, and I'm trying to convince people and it's hard because, you know, a lot of us in the past said this is a very important election and blah, blah, blah. This is the one. I think we are in a crisis that is the third great crisis in American history, more than the Depression. First, of course, the Revolutionary War, whether we would even become a country. Then the Civil War. People usually say then the Depression. I don't think the Depression got it what is most fundamental about this country. It was economic, but I don't think it threatened the rule of law as we do, as we have now. Would you rank the crisis we're in now that way? I would, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because don't forget, Donald Trump has the authority of the president of the United States in his hands. Right. In terms of what he can do domestically here, as well as what he can do internationally. To try to distract attention, whether or not he's going to pursue some type of foreign adventure, military or otherwise. Right. But fundamentally, though, what he's doing to this country, he's dividing us. We Americans, as you pointed out, Revolutionary War and Civil War, we fought hard for the freedoms and liberties uh, that we have right now. And so he's dividing Americans. And so I'm really concerned that as he continues to play to his base, he's further dividing us. And I'm really concerned about whether this could spill over into the streets. And so I don't know what the principal protagonist in this drama is going to do. But I surely hope that those adults and those people in the White House and in the cabinet and in the Congress are going to recognize that they need to act before there's a real disaster. And by act, I mean whether it's going up to Donald Trump and saying, this has got to stop. You are ruining this country, and we're not going to tolerate it any longer. They cannot turn a blind eye to this. They have to forget about the political affiliation. They need to do the right thing.
John, thank you for everything you've done for this country and what you're doing.